Chapter 7 The Ransom for a Life If an ox gore a man or a woman that they die, then the ox shall be surely stoned, and his flesh shall not be eaten, but the owner of the ox shall be quit. But if the ox were wont to push gore with his horn in time past, and it hath been testified to his owner, and he hath not kept him in, but that he hath killed a man or a woman, the ox shall be stoned, and his owner also shall be put to death. If there be laid on him a sum of money, then he shall give for the ransom of his life whatsoever is laid upon him, whether he have gored a son or have gored a daughter. According to this judgment shall it be done unto him. Exodus 21, 28-31 The Bible tells us that we live in a universe which was created by God at the beginning of time in history and that this world is sustained by him moment by moment. The doctrines of creation and providence are therefore linked. The universe which God created, he presently sustains. We live in a world of cosmic personalism. God's answer to Job, beginning in chapter 38 and continuing through chapter 40, presents a summary of the total control of all events by God. In such a world, men cannot escape full responsibility for their actions. God holds them responsible for everything they think, say, and do. But I say unto you, that every idle word that men shall speak, they shall give account thereof in the day of judgment. Matthew 12.36 But I say unto you, that whosoever looketh on a woman to lust after her, hath committed adultery with her already in his heart. Matthew 5.28 Everything people do is done within a personally sustained, God-ordained universe. Romans 9. They succeed or fail in terms of God's decree. They run to God ethically, or they run away from God unethically. They cannot run away from Him metaphysically. God is everywhere. There is no escape. Whither shall I go from thy spirit? Or whither shall I flee from thy presence? If I ascend up into heaven, thou art there. If I make my bed in hell, behold, thou art there. Psalm 139, 7 and 8. Am I a God at hand, saith the Lord, and not a God afar off? Can any hide himself in secret places that I shall not see him, saith the Lord? Do not I fill heaven and earth, saith the Lord? Jeremiah 23, 23 and 24. Human action is always personal, never impersonal. First, it is personal primarily with respect to God. God is the ultimate inescapable fact of man's environment not sticks and stones. Second, human action is secondarily personal with respect to oneself, one's goals, choices, and assets. Third, human action is personal with respect to other human actors, both as individuals and as covenantal groups. Fourth, human action is personal with respect to the environment, which God has created and presently sustains, and over which he has placed mankind. Man's responsibility extends upward to God, inward to himself, outward toward other men, and downward toward the environment. It is comprehensive responsibility. When we speak of responsible men, we should have this four-part comprehensive responsibility in mind, not just one or two aspects. A person may appear to be responsible in one or two areas of his life, but whether he likes it or not, or whether he is adequately instructed or not, he is covenantally responsible before God in all four ways, and he will be held totally accountable 
for his thoughts and actions on the Day of Judgment. Though God holds each person fully responsible, no agency of human government has the power to do so. This is why we must affirm, as Christians, that with respect to the decisions of human governments regarding men's personal responsibility, there must always be limited liability. No agency of human government is omniscient. None possesses the ability of God to read the human heart or to assess damages perfectly. We must wait for perfect justice until the day of final judgment. To insist on perfect justice from human government is to divinize that agency. It will also lead to its bankruptcy and the destruction of justice. Responsibility Upward and Downward Man's responsibility outward and downward is seen in this section of Exodus. A man owes protection to his fellow man, which includes women, as the passage at the beginning of the chapter clearly points out. This passage also teaches that dumb animals under a man's personal administration are responsible through him for their actions. They are responsible upward to mankind through their master, as well as outward to other beasts through their master. Exodus 21.35 Human society enforces sanctions against lawless behavior, whether in the animals or their owners. Domesticated animals are responsible to mankind through their owners, and therefore society holds the owners responsible for those animals under their control. Animals that are not domesticated, neither trained nor tamed, are to be under physical restraint at the owner's expense. The shedding of man's blood is illegal, either by man or beast. But flesh with the life thereof, which is the blood thereof, shall ye not eat. And surely your blood of, of your lives will I require. At the hand of every beast will I require it. And at the hand of man, at the hand of every man's brother, will I require the life of man. Whoso sheddeth man's blood, by man shall his blood be shed. For in the image of God made he man. Genesis 9, 4-6 the ox that gores a man to death cannot escape the sanctions of biblical law. Neither can other man-killing animals. In the case of the ox, the animal is presumed to be domesticated, for if it were dangerous, the owner would be required to restrain it. The owner becomes legally liable because what was, in fact, a dangerous animal had been publicly treated by him as if it had been safe. The owner, deliberately or inadvertently, misinformed the public about the risks. He did not place restraints on it. The victim died because of the neglect of the owner. The owner should have placed restraints on the beast, or else he should have placed warnings for bystanders. Why shouldn't bystanders recognize that the animal is dangerous? Why are they considered judicially innocent? Don't people know that bulls charge people and gore them? They do know, which is why the Hebrew usage as in English indicates that ox, in this case, must refer to a castrated male bovine castrated beast is not normally aggressive. It is easier to bring under dominion through training. In this sense, a castrated male bovine is unnaturally subordinate. As an aside, the question of unnatural subordination, lack of male dominion, can also be raised with respect to the prohibition against eunuchs worshipping in the congregation. Deuteronomy 23.1 Presumably, this was because eunuchs could not produce a family, and to that extent, they were cut off from the future. Rush Dooney writes, unfortunately using the present tense, quote, Because eunuchs are without posterity, 
They have no interest in the future, and hence no citizenship. End quote. This was true enough in ancient Israel, where land tenure, bloodlines, political participation, elders in the gates, and the national covenant were intermixed. The New Testament forever abolished this biological geographical intermixture. Spiritual adoption became forthrightly the foundation of heavenly citizenship, Philippians 3.20, and therefore the only basis of church membership. The baptism of the Ethiopian eunuch by Philip the deacon, Acts 8, indicates that the Old Testament rule lost all meaning once Jesus, the promised seed, had come and completed his work. The goring ox is also judicially guilty. He is therefore treated as a responsible moral agent, not to the extent that a man is, of course, but responsible nonetheless. We train our domestic animals. We beat them and reward them. Modern scientists call this training behavior modification. In other words, we deal with them on the assumption that they can learn, remember, and discipline themselves. Anyone who has ever seen a dog that looks guilty which slinks around as if it has done something it knows is wrong, can safely guess that the dog has done something wrong. It may take time to find out what, but the search must begin. The dog knows. An ethically unclean beast. The goring ox is to be treated as if it were an unclean beast. It has become an ethically unclean beast. Because of its ethical uncleanness, it is still subject to this punishment in New Testament times despite the New Testament's abandonment of the category of physical and ritual uncleanness. James Jordan comments on the biblical meaning of unclean animals. Quote, All unclean animals resemble the serpent in three ways. They eat dirt, rotting carrion, manure, garbage. They move in contact with dirt, crawling on their bellies, fleshy pads of their feet in touch with the ground, no scales to keep their skin from contact with their watery environment. They revolt against human dominion, killing men or other beasts. Under the symbolism of the Old Covenant, such satanic beasts represent the satanic nations. Leviticus 20, 22-26 For animals are images of men. To eat satanic animals under the Old Covenant was to eat the satanic lifestyle, to eat death and rebellion. The ox is a clean animal. The heifer and the prepubescent bullock have sweet temperaments and can be sacrificed for human sin, for their gentle, non-violent dispositions reflect the character of Jesus Christ. When the bullock enters puberty, however, his temperament changes for the worse. He becomes ornery, testy, and sometimes downright vicious. Many a man has lost his life to a goring bull. The change from bullock to bull can be seen as analogous to the fall of man, at least potentially. If the ox rises up and gores a man, he becomes unclean, fallen. The unnaturalness of an animal's killing, a man is only highlighted in the case of a clean, domesticated beast like the ox. Such an ox, by its actions, becomes unclean, so that its flesh may not be eaten. The fact that the animal is stoned indicates that the purpose of the law is not simply to rid the earth of a dangerous beast. Stoning in the Bible is the normal means of capital punishment for men. Its application to the animal here shows that animals are to be held accountable to some degree for their actions. It is also a visual sign of what happens when a clean covenant man rebels against authority and kills men. Stoning is usually understood to represent the judgment of God, since the Christ is the rock and the stone, which threatens to fall upon men and to destroy them. Matthew 21:44. In line with this, the community of believers is often likened to stones, used for building God's spiritual temple, and so forth. 
In stoning, each member of the community hurls a rock representing himself and his affirmation of God's judgment. The principle of stoning, then, affirms that the judgment is God's. The application of stoning affirms the community's assent and participation in that judgment. End quote. Covenantal Hierarchy and Guilty Animals But if the ox were wont to push gore with his horn in time past, and it hath been testified to his owner, and he hath not kept him in, but that he hath killed a man or a woman, the ox shall be stoned, and his owner also shall be put to death. The owner had been warned that the beast was dangerous. We shall consider in the next section what constitutes valid evidence of habitual goring. He had withheld this information from the victim. How? By refusing to place adequate restraints on the beast. The victim had every reason to believe that the ox was fully domesticated, meaning that it was self-disciplined under the general authority of its owner. Again, it is self-government under God's law, which is the crucial form of government. The Bible is unique in establishing the judicial requirement of self-government to beasts in general. At the very least, any beast is to be held accountable if it kills a human being. Maimonides made one exception regarding a domesticated beast. It is not responsible if it kills a heathen, meaning a Gentile. Since the days of Noah, they have had the fear of man placed in them by God, Genesis 9-2. A beast must somehow suppress this fear, an internal warning from God, in order to kill a man. Beasts are responsible creatures. They are to be hunted down and killed for the, this form of rebellion. Some domesticated beasts are responsible outward to other beasts, upward to man, and through their masters, upward to God. The Bible deals with the liability problem by making owners personally responsible for the actions of their animals. If their animals cause no problems, there will be no penalties. The more dangerous the animals, the more risky the ownership. Clearly, Exodus 21.30 is a case law application of a general principle regarding the responsibilities of ownership. The principle can be extended to ownership of other animals besides oxen, and also to related instances of personal financial liability for damages in cases not involving animals. The law makes it clear that the owner may not profit in any way from the evil act of the beast. He is not permitted to salvage anything of value. The beast is stoned, the same death penalty that a guilty human would receive, and the owner does not receive the carcass. Its flesh may not be eaten. Verse 28. The beast is treated as if it were a human being. Its evil act brings death. Not the normal killing of oxen, which allows owners to eat the flesh or sell it to those who will, but the death of the guilty. The guilty beast is no longer part of the dominion covenant. It can no longer serve the economic purposes of men, except as an example. It has to be cut off in the midst of time, just as a murderer is to be cut off in the midst of time. Why Stoning? J.J. Finkelstein discusses at considerable length the question of the stoning of the ox. While similar laws regarding the goring ox are found in many ancient Near Eastern law codes, the Hebrew law is unique. It specifically requires stoning of the ox that kills any human being, even a slave. Finkelstein concludes that this requirement testified to the ox's crime as being of a different order than the crime of its negligent owner. It points to treason, a rebellion against the cosmic order, a crime comparable to a Hebrew's enticing of a family member to worship foreign gods, which was also to be punished by stoning, Deuteronomy 13, 6-11. It is an offense against the whole community, and the whole community is therefore involved in the execution. Quote, the real crime of the ox is that by killing a human being, whether out of viciousness, 
or by an involuntary motion, it has objectively committed a de facto insurrection against the hierarchic order established by creation. Man was designated by God to rule over the fish of the sea, the fowl of the skies, the cattle, the earth, and all creatures that roam over the earth, Genesis 1, and 28, simply by its behavior. And it is vital here to stress that intention is immaterial. The guilt is objective. The ox has, albeit involuntary, performed an act whose effect amounts to treason. It has acted against man, its superior in the hierarchy of creation, as man acts against God when violating the Sabbath or when practicing idolatry. It is precisely for this reason that the flesh of the ox may not be consumed. End quote. Finkelstein traces this biblical law forward into the Middle Ages. In medieval Europe, trials for animals were actually held by the civil government. Defense lawyers and secular courts were hired at public expense to defend accused beasts. Witnesses were called. Guilty animals were destroyed as a civic act. In some cases, they were publicly hanged. Few people know about this side of European history, although specialized historians have known all along. Some of the great minds of Western philosophy, including Aquinas and Leibniz, attempted to explain this practice rationally. Yet the specialized historians have generally remained silent, and few professional historians have ever heard of such going-ons, nor are they aware that in ancient Athens, the courts tried inanimate objects, such as statues, that had fallen and killed someone. If convicted, the object was banished from the city. Why the silence? Why don't these stories get into the textbooks? As Humphrey asks, quote, Why were we never told? Why were we taught so many dreary facts of history at school and not taught these? End quote. He answers his own question. Modern historians can make little sense out of these facts. There seems to be no logical explanation for the way our ancestors treated guilty animals. What is a guilty animal, anyway? A legally convicted guilty animal? How can such events be explained? Finkelstein cites the theory of legal scholar Hans Kelsen that such a practice points to the animism of early medieval Europe, since to try an animal in court obviously points to a theory of the animal's possession of a soul. Kelsen says that this reflects early Europe's older primitivism. Finkelstein then attacks Kelsen's naive approach to an understanding of this practice. In contrast to primitive societies, it is only in the West that such legal sanctions against offending animals have been enforced. Quote, only in Western society or in societies based on the hierarchic classification of the phenomena of the universe that is biblical in its origins do we see the curious practice of trying and executing animals as if they were human criminals. End quote. Then he makes a profound observation. Quote, what Kelson has misunderstood here, and in this he is typical of most Western commentators, is the sense, widespread in primitive societies, as indeed in civilized societies of non-Western derivation, that the extra-human universe is autonomous, and that this autonomy or integrity is a quality inherent in every species of thing, because Western society long denied such autonomy to the creation, it has in the past adhered to the biblical requirement of destroying killer animals. In Europe, they were even given a formal trial. Expiation What none of the scholars discusses is the need for expiation, a need which is both psychological and covenantal. The animal's owner and the community at large, through its representatives, must publicly disassociate themselves from the killer beast. They must demonstrate publicly that they in no way sanction the beast's murderous act. 
There is an Old Testament precedent for the need for this sort of formal expiation, the requirement in ancient Israel that civic officials sacrifice a heifer when they could not solve a murder that had taken place in a nearby field, Deuteronomy 21, 1-9. So shalt thou put away the guilt of innocent blood from among you, when thou shalt do that which is right in the sight of the Lord, verse 9. In New Testament times, we no longer need to sacrifice animals, Hebrews 9 and 10. But the need for formal procedures for the expiation of the crime of man-killing is still basic. To ignore this need is to unleash the furies of the human heart. The medieval world understood this to some degree. However, imperfectly, the modern humanistic West does not understand it at all, and seeks to deny it by abolishing any trace of such ritual practices. We cannot make sense of the so-called primitive folk practices of medieval and early modern Western history that dealt with this fundamental civic and personal need, and so we, ref- we refuse even to discuss them in our history books. We execute murderers in private when we execute them at all. In the state of Massachusetts in the early 1970s, the median jail term served by a murderer was under two and a half years. Humanist intellectuals in the non-communist West seek to persuade the public that society is itself ritually guilty for maintaining the barbarous practice of capital punishment. Meanwhile, in the year of our Lord, 1988, in the streets of Southern California, motorists were shooting each other during traffic jams, and teenage gang members were executing at least one victim per day. God is not mocked at zero cost to the mockers. Personal Liability and Self-Discipline The convicted owner of the habitually goring ox in Exodus 21-28 implicitly misinformed the ox's victim. He had known that the ox had been violent in the past, yet he did not take steps to restrain it. The beast was roaming around as if it had no prior record of violence. The victim did not recognize the danger involved in being near the beast. The Bible does not reveal in these passages regarding goring oxen the evidence that constitutes judicially binding prior knowledge. What kind of information did the owner have to possess in order for the court to declare him guilty? The rabbinical specialists in Jewish law said that the animal had to have gored someone or other animals on three occasions before the owner became personally liable. Maimonides spelled it out in even greater detail. Quote, Any domesticated animal must first kill three heathen, Gentiles, plus one Israelite, or kill three fatally ill Israelites, plus one in good health, or kill three people at one time, or kill three animals at one time, end quote. This is an, an excessive number of prior infractions in order to activate capital sanctions. Subsequent victims need more protection than these Talmudic rules would provide. It is far more reasonable to conclude that a single prior conviction should suffice to identify the beast as dangerous. We know that an ox that had gored another ox had to be sold by its owner to a third party, Exodus 21.35. Thus, to be the owner of an ox that had been convicted of goring, he would have had to go out and repurchase the offending ox, or else he is the person who bought the offending ox. In either case, he had taken active steps to buy a known offender. To have done this, and then to have refused to take active measures to restrain it, should make him legally vulnerable to the charge of negligence. Would other evidence rather than a prior conviction be a sufficient warning? What if neighbors had reported the beast to the authorities? If the authorities had issued a formal warning to the owner, would this serve as evidence of its status as a habitual offender? If we answer yes, then this raises the issue of innocent until proven guilty. 
there had been no proven evidence against the beast. Perhaps neighbors were hostile to the ox's owner and reported false information. On the other hand, perhaps they were telling the truth and the owner was negligent in not taking steps to restrain the ox. The Double Witness Principle versus the Messianic State The easiest way to resolve the issue is to rely on the biblical principle of the double witness, Deuteronomy 17.6. If two different witnesses each reports a different infraction, neither of the infractions had a double witness. Then the authorities must issue a warning to the owner. This formal warning can then serve as evidence in a future trial. The differing criteria of evidence should be discussed in terms of the differing impact of the crime and differences in the resulting liability. The death of a human being versus the death of someone else's ox. Myomenides fails to recognize that the formal criteria that govern evidence of liability in the case of an ox that kills another ox are less rigorous because the crime is less damaging. In the case of an ox that slays another ox, biblical law does not require that a formal warning be given by the authorities to the owner. Prior general knowledge is sufficient to convict. Or if it be known that the ox hath used to push gore in time past, and his owner hath not kept him in, he shall surely pay ox for ox, and the dead shall be his own. Exodus 21.36 Public knowledge rather than a formal complaint to the civil authorities is sufficient to convict the owner in this instance. It can be safely assumed by the judge that if the public knew about the beast's habits, then the owner must have known. In contrast, the potential liability of the owner is far greater when an ox kills a human being. It is too dangerous to allow the judge to make his ruling in terms of the assumption of general knowledge. By requiring more rigorous standards of evidence, biblical law restrains the discretionary authority of the state's representative in the more serious cases of negligence. This restrains the state. Here is the viewpoint of the modern humanistic state. The state as an agency that possesses the judicial authority an obligation to search men's hearts and to render formal judgment in terms of its findings. This view of state power asserts that the state possesses an ability that only God possesses, the ability to know man's heart. The prophet Jeremiah asked rhetorically, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Jeremiah 17.9 His answer was clear. I, the Lord, search the heart. I try the reins, even to give every man according to his ways and according to the fruit of his doings. Jeremiah 17.10 The human judge can make casual connections based on public evidence, but he cannot search the defendant's heart. Any assertion to the contrary necessarily involves an attempt to divinize man and, in all likelihood, divinize man's major judicial representative, the state. The Goring of a Slave or a Child if the ox shall push, gore, a manservant or a maidservant, he shall give unto their master thirty shekels of silver, and the ox shall be stoned. Exodus 21.32 Normally, the death penalty could be imposed on the owner of the ox. In this case, however, the penalty was fixed by law. Thirty shekels of silver. The wording here is peculiar. To push means, in this instance, to kill. In verse 29, push did not mean to kill. But if the ox were wont to push with his horn in time past, and it hath been testified to his owner, and he hath not kept him in, dot, 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 end quote. Had to push meant to kill, the ox would have been executed upon conviction. 
An ox that killed someone was stoned to death. Verse 28. Thus, push, in verse 29, had to mean something other than killing. But with respect to servants, the word push, or gore, is used in the sense of gore to death. This is why the ox is executed. A human being has died. Why the comparatively small penalty? Why is the death of a servant dealt with less severely? Because the servant's owner has not suffered a loss comparable to the loss suffered by the heirs of a free man or woman. He has lost part of an investment in human capital, one which he would have had to part with after a set term of years. He has not suffered the loss of a relative. The primary issue is covenantal. The owner has not suffered a covenantal loss. He has suffered only an economic loss. He is not entitled to place penalties on the owner of the goring ox larger than the economic penalty specified by law. If a male bondservant had brought a wife and children into the household of the owner, they would now go free, which serves them as a form of compensation. The master would have recouped his investment from the owner of the ox, thereby freeing the slave's heirs from further service. What if the deceased bondservant had married after becoming a bondservant? In this instance, the heirs probably would have had the option of either remaining as servants in the owner's household or going free. Whether they would go free or not would depend on the size of the penalty payment to the bondservant owner compared to what he had paid for the bondservant. If the death occurred shortly before the bondservant was to have gone free, then the penalty payment would have constituted an overpayment, and the extra money probably would have functioned as a release price for the wife and children of the bondservant. But if the penalty payment was approximately what the owner had spent to pay off the bondservant's debt, the original cause of his going into slavery, then the bondservant's family would have remained with the owner, as specified in Exodus 21.4. An interesting connection can be seen between the death of Christ on the cross and the death of the gourd servant. James B. Jordan has commented on this connection. Quote, As we have seen, our Lord Jesus Christ was born into the world as a home-born slave son, for his incarnation was his ear's circumcision. On the cross, he was made sin for us, and thus came under condemnation of death. He became an abject slave, that we might be elevated into the status of adopted slave sons. He was killed by the wild beasts, the lions of paganism, and the apostate, unclean, goring bulls of Israel. Many bulls have surrounded me, Strong ones from Bashan have encircled me. They open wide their mouth at me as a ravening and a roaring lion. Dot, dot, dot. Save me from the lion's mouth and from the horns of the wild oxen. Thou dost answer me. Psalm twenty-two, twelve, thirteen, and 21. Thus the price given for Christ's death was the price of the gourd slave, 30 pieces of silver. Matthew twenty-six, fifteen. At his resurrection, however, our Lord overcame the bulls and trampled on the silver for which he was sold. Rebuke the beasts of the reeds, the herds of bulls with the calves of the peoples, trampling underfoot the pieces of silver. He has scattered the people who delight in war. Psalm 68.30 Thus Judas found no joy in his silver, and it was used to buy a burying field for dead strangers, pagans destroyed by the wrath of God. Matthew 27, 2-10 the goring of a child. Quote, Whether he have gored a son or have gored a daughter, according to this judgment shall it be done unto him. End quote. Exodus 21.31 This is an important biblical principle. 
the imposition of a fine rather than the execution of the ox's owner or his child, a pagan practice of the ancient Near East. The Bible places this example under the general rule that allows the substitution of a fine for the death of the owner. This means that the evil practice of the ancient Near East, killing a man's child if he kills another man's child, is prohibited. The Hammurabi Code specified, quote, If a builder constructed a house for a seigneur, but did not make his work strong, with the result that the house which he built collapsed, and so has caused the death of the owner of the house, thou builder shall be put to death. If it has caused the death of a son of the owner of the house, they shall put the son of that builder to death. End quote. This sharp difference from Babylonian law would appear to be an application of the principle of Deuteronomy 24.16. The fathers shall not be put to death for the children, neither shall the children be put to death for the fathers. Every man shall be put to death for his own sin. Criminal Negligence We know from the text that the ox's owner had been warned about the dangerous ox, yet he did nothing visibly to restrain it. Why would an owner neglect a warning from someone else regarding the threat of his ox to others? There are several possible reasons. First, he may not trust the judgment of the person bringing the warning. The beast may behave quite well in the owner's presence. Is he to trust the judgment of a stranger and not trust his own personal experience? But once the warning is delivered, he is in jeopardy. If the beast injures someone and the informant announces publicly that he had warned the owner, the owner becomes legally liable for the victim's suffering. The owner may be a procrastinator. He fully intended to place restraints on the ox, but he just never got around to it. This does not absolve him from full personal liability, but it does explain why he failed to take effective action. Another reason for not restraining the ox is economics. It takes extra care and cost to keep an unruly beast under control. For example, over and over in colonial America, the town records reveal that owners of pigs, sheep, and cattle had disobeyed previous legislation requiring them to pen the beasts in or put rings in their noses. Apparently, the authorities were unable to gain compliance, for this complaint was continual and widespread throughout the 17th century. The costs of supervising the animals or maintaining fences in good repair were just too high in the opinion of countless owners. Even putting a ring in the beast's noses, making it easier for others to put a rope through the ring and pull a beast home or to some other location, was simply too much trouble. Boston imposed stiff fines on the owners of wandering animals, which helped to reduce the problem. In one case, the unwillingness or inability of a woman to control her wandering pig literally changed the political history of the United States. Litigation over the ownership of a wandering pig between good woman, Goody, Sherman, and the well-to-do Boston merchant, Robert Kane, led in 1644 to a deadlock in the general court legislature of Massachusetts between the deputies or direct representatives of the people who favored Sherman and magistrates who favored Kane. The result was the division of the two groups into separate legislative houses, the origin of bicameralism in America. As Brittenbog notes, quote, The frequency with which the hog appears in town records is mute proof that despite many good and sufficient measures, the problem was never solved, and the bicameral legislature of Massachusetts remains a monument to its persistence. End quote. Passing laws is not sufficient. Sanctions must be imposed that alter human behavior. The Bible establishes the principle of cosmic personalism as the foundation of the universe. There is no way that men can escape their responsibilities before God. 
because biblical law recognizes this principle. It establishes the judicial principle of restitution to victims by the negligent. The general rule is an eye for an eye, a life for a life. Conclusion The Bible affirms the principle of limited liability before men. The state is not God. It cannot know every aspect of historical causation. Neither can men. The state, therefore, cannot lawfully impose unlimited liability on those convicted of negligence, irrespective of their knowledge, decisions, and contractual arrangements. In this unique instance, the case of a dangerous ox that kills a person, the guilty owner can legitimately escape death, though his beast cannot, because the victim's heirs are allowed to impose an economic restitution payment on the negligent individual.